Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, uh, it is hard to believe, but we have completed another Nationals uh, season and an in- another AMTA season. Uh, Nationals is over. Congratulations to UCLA on being our 38th AMTA National Champion. We'll have a lot to say about that and more. An unbelievable final round between UCLA and Harvard that we'll have lots to chat about uh, very soon as we go through all of the results from Nationals. Uh, But before we get to any of that, Drew, I do want to cover some very, very important business at the beginning of this podcast, which is that I do want to pause and give you the opportunity to gloat for picking both the national champion and the national runner up in our last episode with Henry Lehman when we did our nationals draft. So the the virtual floor is yours. Well, I think that uh, pick and chalk has its uh, has its perks sometimes, <laughs> um, and and the perk was that yes, Harvard and UCLA were both on my team. They were my first and second picks. Um, I did get the order wrong. I had Harvard first round, UCLA second round, but um, yeah, they're both really, really, really good. And anyone who watched that final round knows that they were really, really good. Um, and so thank you to both Harvard and UCLA for making my team look good. They definitely helped uh, the latter half of my team, but that's okay. We didn't need it. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it was. I'm glad we did that little draft. It was a fun uh, added layer to my nationals, you know, tab updates yeah. experience of being like, oh, how are my teams doing? And yeah. randomly <laughs> checking in on Arkansas and Wisconsin and Berkeley <laughs> and being like, okay, like, come on, guys, like, come what's on, going on? <laughs> yeah. And like Haverford had a round with Tufts and I'm like, this is great. It's a win-win. Either Haverford <laughs> wins or my fantasy team wins. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was a lot of fun and um, I'm glad we had Henry on for it. It was, it was great. Definitely a good time. Yeah, I totally agree. I heard some good things from some listeners about the episode. So we appreciate Henry making some time. And of course, congratulations to his Notre Dame squad on placing. It sounds like they had a very good weekend as well. Uh, So just a couple of quick notes here. We're not going to spend a ton of time in this episode discussing the details of the national final round like we've done the last couple of years. We're really hoping to have on some folks from UCLA. We've reached out to them. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this episode, we've got that lined up. So, you know, I'm sure it'll come up here and there in our discussions, but we're hoping to have a chance to talk to some folks from UCLA to dig into the details of the national final round uh, and everything related to that. Uh, So just sort of a brief explainer there. Uh, One other thing to talk about before we get to the actual nationals results. In fact, we got a couple things we want to talk about. Uh, And so, of course, one of the cool things about closing ceremonies and nationals is every year you get a case teaser. We get just a little peek at what the case committee is working on uh, for August 15th, which if you've done this before, uh, you know, will be here before any of us realize it. Uh, And Graham Henry, a member of the case committee uh, for next year, came up and shared an audio clip from uh, next year's case preview. And so we're gonna go ahead and listen to that now. Hello, everyone. We have breaking news from BNN that we got a tip of an ongoing emergency at Miller Tower. We were able to get a hold of the 911 call. And if I could have that played, please. I went to Miller Tower. Something is happening. I was watching the video feed from our rooftop. An unauthorized helicopter just landed on our roof. Do you see anyone inside the helicopter? Not really. Um, no, no. Oh, wait. The doors just opened. 
It looks like some people are getting out. I count three or, or four. Uh, they're, they're getting out. It, it looks like a couple of them are holding uh, s something. It's, uh, uh, it looks like they might be holding axes or, or clubs or I, I, I. What are they doing? Oh, God. It looks like they're heading for the armored doors. One of them definitely has a gun. Oh, God. They're breaking into the building. Two of them are going after the doors. Where Where do the other ones go? Sir, we're going to send units to you right away. How many people are currently in the building? Are you still there? Oh, my God. They've broken down the door. They're coming in. I, I, oh, no. I, I lost the video feed. I, I have no idea where they are. They must be coming for the... Stay tuned throughout the summer for more breaking news from BNN. Drew, I was really excited to hear uh, the the preview. Obviously, you know, Graham was was delivering the breaking news. And then we got to hear that audio clip with a couple of uh, familiar voices. Uh, another year that the audio clip is the case teaser. I have no idea what to expect from this case. Sounds, you know, kind of like a... Um, yeah, you know, why am I why am I blanking on on Bruce Willis and the um what come on help me oh, out here I'm, Die Hard uh, Die Hard right kind of that was my first thought <laughs> I was like kind of sounds like Die Hard uh so I don't know it sounds really interesting what do you think about the case uh, teaser Yeah I mean I definitely think that it was you know a kind of cute little ampta nod we I think we've now had two years in a row obviously of doing the the random audio clip um i'm anxious to see how much it actually gets used um i think that it was very uh, i think it's a fun way to tease the case if nothing else and i think that we kind of had the same effect with the clip from last year's case um i i think it's fun to try different forms of media and see how people do with them um Again, how much of effect it will actually end up having definitely remains to be seen. But um, the case sounds fun. I mean, definitely, clearly criminal case. So that's <laughs> going to be exciting. And um, I think that there's always something to the the drama of someone coming in guns blazing. So definitely just excited to hear more and, and learn more about the new case. Yep, I agree. And I, and I hate to break it to uh, whoever we, we, we're fairly confident from listening to the clip that we think the main voice is criminal case committee chair neil shewitt yes. friend of the pod um i don't think neil's character is going to survive whatever is happening <laughs> um in what form i don't know but of course the nature of putting a voice to someone is they're probably not going to be a witness that you can call in the case mm -hmm. so we'll see what happens there no i think a uh, good point you know we we lost poor reese campbell and, and his wonderful voice last year um and you know I don't know what this character's name is going to be, but uh, uh, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, Ben. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. And maybe, maybe they'll find a way for for President Jonathan Woodward to use his um, uh, aeronautics experience again ah, or, or something course. like that. <laughs> so a couple other things we want to chat about before we, we talk about the actual division results. So Drew has been gracious enough to let me get on my soapbox for just a moment here. So I'm going to try to be very brief in offering a quick thought on something that, that just kind of bugged me a little bit. Uh, and that had to do with closing ceremonies uh, at nationals. So closing ceremonies, and sounds like all things considered, Rhodes, unsurprisingly, did a wonderful job hosting nationals. I've heard a ton of great things about the tournament. Uh, there was a speaker at closing ceremonies. And one of the things I intended to do uh, prior to recording that I just realized I did not do is actually look up the name of, of the man who was speaking. I know that he was representing 
uh, the uh, division, I believe it was the Birch Porter and Johnson division. I think he was affiliated with that particular law firm. So I apologize for not looking up the person's name. Uh, but he gave a speech at closings as sort of is commonplace at, at closing ceremonies every year. Most of it was fine, pretty, pretty innocent. Uh, but near the end of the speech, he started talking about the concept of civility. And in um, promoting the concept of civility, he quoted a letter from Dean Jenny Martinez, who's the dean at Stanford Law School. Uh, if you're up on the controversy that occurred over the last couple of months related to Stanford Law School and Judge Kyle Duncan, who's a federal judge on the Fifth Circuit, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. It would take a very, very long time. And it's just, just this is just not the podcast for that. But the bottom line is there's been this controversy that's gone on where Judge Duncan came to speak, invited by the Federalist Society. He was shouted down by a number of student protesters and Stanford eventually apologized to him for, for a variety of reasons. Um, I have my issues with um, Stanford's decision to do that. That's sort of neither here nor there. But what frustrated me was he used that letter to try to sort of impart this message of like how important like civil and conscientious debate is. And sure, that that's fine, right? Like civility, cool, no issues with that. But my problem is these students who were protesting were protesting a judge who, who they argued uh, is anti-trans and anti-LGBTQIA+, and has taken a number of what they believe to be very harmful positions. And they were sort of defending their own humanity, which I think is like a very honorable thing to do. And I just, it really rubbed me the wrong way to use this particular example out of so many other examples of civility that you could use uh, in order to try to impart that message, given the diversity and inclusion in the AMTA community and given the amount of work we have still to do in that area. So I guess, and to be clear, I'm not blaming anyone for this. Like, I don't think Rhodes is at fault. I, I don't think it's some horrible thing, but I guess I just wanted to mention that I hope in the future we really push for speakers who aren't just kind of fall back onto like these old tropes of civility because people aren't obligated to be civil when their humanity is threatened uh, and instead really try to push forward and look forward towards being as inclusive and supportive of our entire community as possible. So just sort of a brief soapbox, Drew, I appreciate you letting me chime in on that. And yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts before we keep well moving. I think that the only thing I'll say, and, and admittedly, I didn't listen to all of it mostly because I tend to not listen to whatever national speaker comes on. And I'm sorry that I just, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't very think you're rarely find it to be particularly interesting. And I would rather wait until they actually announce awards and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of what you said, Ben, I, I personally obviously agree with. And I'll say that I'm yet to to hear about, as I said, you know, I don't normally listen to it, but I'm, I'm yet to hear about a speaker that comes on and talks about issues that feel at all relevant or uh, aware of the audience that it's being presented to. Um, these are college kids that are often thinking about going into the law. And I think that there are a lot of really inspirational um, and important things that could be and should be said that rarely do. Um, I think that it, it is unfortunate that it is a that it is an opportunity that I think is so often squandered. And yeah, I I don't really have much more to say beyond that. But um, yeah, I, I agree with what you said, Ben. And I just, I don't know. I think that we can do better as an organization at finding more interesting speakers that have something more interesting to say. Yeah, let me give a quick example, and then we'll talk about case balance. Back in 2017, UMBC's first year at Nationals was hosted by UCLA uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and the closing ceremony speaker was Jonathan Rapping, who is the founder of Gideon's Promise. 
um, and he brought the MFing house down. Like he he was unbelievable, and he came in there fired up. And like you just said, look, nobody wants there to be a speaker at closing ceremonies, but there has to be a speaker at closing ceremonies because people give money, and oftentimes that's what's happened: is someone who's given a lot of money ends up delivering a pretty bad speech at closing ceremonies. We can just all be honest that that's frequently what happens. UCLA made the decision to bring in Jonathan Rapping, who basically preached for about 20 minutes on the importance of justice and the law and the role that we all play in, you know, in, in just upholding the justice system. He was unbelievable standing ovation. People were crying. I was crying. It was just, it was using that platform, which is an incredibly difficult platform to move justice forward instead of like letting a sponsor drone on for 15 minutes. And I get it. Sponsors are sponsors. You got to give them a chance to be acknowledged. I respect that. I just, you know, I'd like us to think moving forward about how maybe we can take that moment, which is a big moment for our community and focus it less on money and more on justice. That's sort of my one thought on it. And if you don't have anything else, then I'll return us to the case. We can talk about case balance. Nah, let, let's go to case balance. Yeah. yeah, you take it take it over and, and right, sure. kind of give us a sense of what we saw from the case balance at Nationals. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say this. Um, I, I'm really grateful to him for this, but uh, our good friend of the pod, Sam, um, was kind enough to send both of us uh, throughout the weekend um, kind of updates on what's going on, but also some case balance stats. Um I think, Ben, you may have them exactly in front of you. I know that it was very defense-biased or at least pretty substantially defense-biased. I think that we said like the rough numbers were like 51-44. Is that right? Yeah. So I have rounds one through three in front of me here with the two divisions. And what I have here in rounds one through three overall is that there were 44% plaintiff bias. Uh, 44% plaintiff ballots, 51% defense ballots, and then there were some ties in there. So that comes out to an approximately 7% defense bias, rounds one through three. Okay, perfect. So I I think that that 7% number is pretty much exactly on average with what the four of us, when we had both Justin and Sarah on, kind of predicted. I feel like everyone was around either 53 47 or, or 54, 46, something in that range, which is about a 7% um, defense bias. Um, uh, you know, I think that the reasons why we could definitely delve into, but I think we kind of discussed them back on that episode. And I think that for the most part, they were true. I think that um, defense always has its fair share of advantages, but there's definitely a very strong case to be made here. The fact that you are arguing this to lawyers like malpractice kind of has a, a special place in a lot of lawyers hearts and people really understand the importance of um, you know an attorney making strategic decisions I think that there are certain things that are really hard to argue against like not calling the defendant like I think that that one it's just gonna really fall on a lot of deaf ears if you're like it's malpractice to not call the defendant like no like that happens all the time like yeah. it's just uh it, I think that a lot of the arguments that a lot of uh, plaintiffs ended up making just were likely going to be really tough arguments to prove and to get a judge to score very favorably. So I'm not terribly surprised by it. Like I said, I think it's pretty much what we predicted. But Ben, I'll, I'll, I'll toss it to you if you had any other thoughts after hearing it. I don't have a ton. I obviously the only round that I because I wasn't in Memphis. So the only round I've seen of this case was most of the national final round, which I've 
either watched live or got the chance to go back and watch. And I basically agree with you. I also wonder if, you know, we talked to Justin, we've talked to him in the past about this. And we talked to him in the last or two episodes ago about case balance. I wonder if just the nature of this particular case and the way that they wrote it made it harder to apply the concepts of case balance that that he was talking about. Because if you write this case, like I feel like in, in certain issues, there's a tipping point where it's like, okay, you can put enough facts on one side. But when you combine the fact that we everyone agrees that this person did not commit this crime, but as the plaintiff, you essentially have to prove like the, the opposite of that. And you have to prove that that there was other available evidence that the person should have put on. But if if there was all of this other evidence, then you know, how do they can get convicted in the first place? It's like this common kind of complicated trial within a trial puzzle. And I think that, and to be clear, this isn't a critique of the topic. I actually think the topic based on what I've heard and what I've seen turned out really well. And I thought the national final round was unbelievable in a number of ways. And I've heard that there were several other individual rounds that were that quality. But I just think when you get as meta as this case was, it can be difficult to load up the plaintiff with, with facts and and make the case truly balanced. So I, I will say this. I don't think, based on my impressions, that the case, even though it trended de-biased, was like I don't think it was necessarily unfair, right? Like I think that it wasn't the type of case where, you know, we've seen this a couple times at nationals where genuinely teams that maybe put on an inferior performance won some rounds because they happened to be on the side where there was a 15% bias. I don't think that this case was like that. No, I, I'm inclined to agree, and and I'll you know I'll share from personal experience that I didn't watch any of their rounds, but um, I know that the Haverford team, obviously, you can see the tab record, they did way better on 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 plaintiff than defense, and I think that in fairness, that is in part the teams that they faced on those sides, but um, I don't think that it was like an across the board um, defense. Just is you know in a in even round, defense is going to win. Um, I just think that there were easier arguments to make from the defense and that the plaintiff arguments were going to be very challenging, very difficult to prove. And uh, I also just think that in general, when it's kind of a novel, and I, I not that malpractice is novel in general, but novel to mock trial, I think that that tends to be really difficult um, for the the P side because they do have the burden. Like they have to understand the burden well enough to articulate facts in a way that meets that burden. And when you combine it being a newer issue for mock trial, along with the fact that the actual standard of proof that they needed to use for this wasn't the traditional malpractice standard, I think it just makes it um, an added layer of difficulty that I think could be held against some teams. Um, so I, you know, we've kind of droned on enough about this. I think Ben, if you want to take us to uh, to the meat of the matter, um, you definitely can, unless you have something else to say about it. I will add one more thought on this topic, um, and then I think we can move forward. I agree with a lot of what you were saying, and I also think and this just kind of occurred to me as as you were talking about like the nuances of the case, right? The abbreviated nature of college mock trial makes it a, in this particular case, I think made it an uphill climb for the plaintiff because the defense had plenty of like 
like one level responses, right? You saw, I thought UCLA did this really effectively where they were like, well, he did bring this up, right? And as the plaintiff, you don't have a ton of opportunity to be like, like you do, but but to, to go and say like, okay, but like, come on, right? Like just because he asked two questions about it, you know, in real life, right? You'd probably call a rebuttal witness who would be like, you know, mentioning something once isn't equivalent to, you know, to this and that, but in, in the abbreviated nature of college mock trial, it's harder to really get into the weeds like that. And if you do decide to get in the weeds like that, your score probably suffers because you end up looking like you're going down a rabbit hole. So that's my one kind of observation on that topic. Um, so I don't know if you have any other thoughts no, on that. I, I think that's a good observation, but it's a good one to close it out. Why don't we go to the actual results? All right. Sounds good. So we are going to discuss the two divisions that we had at nationals, and I will kick us off with the Birch, Porter, and Johnson division. Uh, this division, uh, have, of course, had 24 teams, like both divisions at nationals, and the teams in order of placing were... Uh, of course, first was Harvard with 10 wins and a 31 CS, followed closely by UCLA with 10 wins and a 30 CS. Uh, one other thing to note, in addition to winning the CS tiebreak by one point, Harvard took two out of three from UCLA B, this is UCLA B, uh, in round three. And so Harvard won both the CS and the head-to-head tiebreak. Uh, right after that, we had Michigan with eight and a half wins and a 24 CS. And then UC Irvine with eight and a half wins and a 23 CS. We then had Yale, seven and a half wins and a 24 and a half CS, followed by Brown University, seven wins and a 28 and a half CS. Then Georgia, seven wins and a 27 CS. Patrick Henry, seven wins and a 23 CS. UT Austin, six and a half wins and a 27 CS. And finally, Boston University, six and a half wins and a 26 and a half CS. We did have two honorable mention teams here, and those were the University of Wisconsin, six and a half wins and a 26 CS, and then Georgia Tech, six and a half wins and a 25 CS. Um, we'll have to kind of go back. One of the things I'm realizing that we didn't note in, in on copying and pasting the um, results is, is A teams versus B teams. Um, I think most of the placements were, were A teams, but there were a few B teams in there. So we'll kind of try to mention that or sprinkle that in as we go. Um, so just a couple of notes here. Look, like I said, we're, we're not going to dwell too much on the actual national final round, but to see Harvard at the top of this list is one of the most impressive accomplishments in the history of the American Mock Trial Association, certainly in what I would call the modern era, right? Like the last roughly 15 years uh, and probably even more like 10 years of, of, of competitions. Um, Harvard, I think, as we discussed in the last episode, got their bid via their B team. And so this team that went to nationals was a hybrid team between their A team and their B team. And if you watched the announcement of the winners uh, in the national final round, you saw that one side, the side that I think eventually went in the national final round, had two members of last year's championship team on the bench, whereas I believe the other side had Travis and then I think two attorneys who were on their B team, or at least two names that I, I wasn't as familiar with. I know their witnesses. Obviously, we saw Travis go in the final, but we're kind of a hybrid of their A team and their B team. So, you know, we're going to talk about both both Harvard and UCLA and and the program depth that they showed to come basically one point away uh, or two points away from winning a national championship with a hybrid A team B team is unbelievable. Just just an absolutely incredible, remarkable accomplishment that even though Harvard finished just shy of UCLA, we should absolutely not diminish. Uh, so it's really impressive showing from them. And then look, this is UCLA B. They were so incredibly close 
to having a UCLA versus UCLA final round. Um, just kind of looking here, uh, they in round three, when they played Harvard, went plus four, minus two, minus three. So if that minus two becomes a plus one, right, that those are the only two ballots that UCLA be lost the entire weekend. Um, and then Harvard's and, th- and that one win is the only ballot that Harvard lost the entire the entire weekend until the final round. So that unbelievably close round, right, a two, a three and a four determined who moved on to the national final round and just barely kept UCLA out of having our first, um, you know, internal A team versus B team final since Maryland did it many, many years ago. So unbelievable showing from them. Look. I'm not going to try to hit every single team on this list. It would take forever. And there are so many big names on this list. Uh, a couple of names that jumped out to me, uh, Brown, right? They're a team that we talked about a lot this season. Um, they they are a team that often gets to orcs, but but in recent years has struggled a bit to either get to nationals or have success at nationals. Very impressive showing from them. We talked a lot about Georgia, see them right after Brown. So an impressive showing from them as well. Um, and, you know, beyond that, right, it's like Michigan took third, such an incredible program, Irvine back up, you know, here in the in the top group, uh, just so many powerhouses here, Patrick Henry, you know, maybe I guess I'll say to see Patrick Henry a not in the top top five is a bit of a surprise. You know, we, we I picked them in our draft and I kind of expected them to have a little bit of a stronger weekend, uh, but ultimately, I think it was clear that Harvard and UCLA B were the class of this division based on their records and it's not surprising at all for me to see them at the top uh drew what do you see here in the bpj division all right so let me let me start by saying that what you said about ucla i I think that just in the context of the fact that their law school team just was the top two at nationals and were in the final round together i was sitting here watching the results being like no way like no way their undergrad does the same thing. Like, I mean, I do think that it is always impressive and it it is incredibly impressive. Their law school team is as dominant as they are. I will admit that I think being that dominant in the undergraduate world in AMTA is at least to me a lot more challenging um, to have both of your teams reach that point. Um, there are a number of reasons why I'm not going to get into the whole like law school versus um, undergrad breakdown, and it's not to make less of UCLA's accomplishment, but um, UCLA law, I should be clear. But I think the fact that their undergrad was as close as they were just confounds the senses and is ridiculous to even consider. Um, but it, I'm glad you pointed out just how close they were. Um, I think that a few things that were a little bit interesting here, I'll just note that I think Tufts, um, they were on my fantasy team, so I was paying close attention to them. Um, They had a really rough first round where they had to face Patrick Henry, and they actually came out on top in a close 2-3 split. Um, They then faced Irvine, who actually swept them. And and this is really my plug for Irvine as like a, wow, sweeping Tufts. that's just always impressive to me. I mean, it was a really, a, a very a pretty close round. We had a minus eight, minus four, minus one. Um, but I definitely will be the first to admit that when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, is, is Irvine going to be making a run at this? Um, and they certainly came close. I mean, they had a really, really impressive showing. But um, Tufts then drew Haverford in their third round. Um, I'm not going to comment on the tie, but um, Tufts 
won two ballots and tied one. And then their fourth round, they had Yale where they they dropped one and uh, they went one and two. So I just, I wanted to note that, I mean, I think they had a, a very difficult schedule, but um, that just, you know, winning that first round with Patrick Henry, I was like, wow, all right, Tufts is back on track. Like this is a really, you know, this is, could be a year where they could end up on top because, I mean, Patrick Henry is a team that a lot of people thought might be winning this division. Um, and to be, face them in round one and win is definitely a good sign. But just the rest of the the rounds, just they couldn't really put it all together anymore. Um, makes me think really highly of Irvine. And um, and for sure, for Yale to go 2-1 in that final round is definitely a good look for them. I think Yale also kind of had a bit of mishaps early on. But I hope that people notice just, I mean, how difficult it is to make it to that final round. You just got to be pretty much perfect. And that is just not easy to do. Um, One thing I wanted to mention uh, before we go on is that there was actually a CIC, um, or I shouldn't say CIC. What are they calling it now? Um, That's what they call it now. Sorry, I'm the right. I'm right. CIC. Sorry. Um, I think I was thinking CRC, but I said the right thing. Perfect. Um, so the CIC did have some sort of in-tournament um, you know, review actually affect things. Um, because if you look at the tab summary, there's a little asterisk and it says pursuant to rule 9.102, team 1486 was penalized one point per ballot for a violation round two, results reflecting an outstanding trial teams in CS do not affect other teams faced. Um, it looks like this was a round between Yale and WashU St. Louis. Um, I got to say, I, I, my understanding is that it, they penalized WashU one point on each ballot. The ballots now read minus 10, minus 10, plus one. I believe that is with this change reflected. Um, so there would be no effect on the ballots, I don't think, because Yale, the two wins weren't definitely weren't affected. And then the loss looks like it was by two and then it going down to just one isn't going to, you know, change the the results. I guess it changes the PDs, but that's it. Um, but I just wanted to note for people that, that actually was used, and this is the only one that that I am familiar with actually, you know, uh, going on to the tab summary effectively. Um, and I hope that we will find out eventually what exactly happened in that round and why why that penalty was incurred. I think similarly to the whole. Uh, NYU Maryland example that we talked about before. Um, I just I, I think that whenever there's actually a, a punishment being given, I really do hope that we find out why and, and what exactly happened. But I just wanted to make sure to flag that for people. Um, other than that, I think that you covered a lot of the teams that that I, I I think were important to cover. There were definitely their fair share of surprises. Um, I will I will quickly shout out that I'm really happy with the Haverford kids. They really worked hard. I'm really proud of them. Um, they you know definitely had a, a disappointing first round for sure. And then I think that the rest of the weekend they really got it back on track. Um, and I'm I'm really proud of them just to to even have been there. Um, but I, I think that they definitely had a respectable showing. Um, some other teams that I'll I'll just mention as as kind of like surprising you know ben you you mentioned brown i think that was a great one to mention is just i think that they're having as strong of a showing as they did was definitely um i think not necessarily expected um and, and good on them for doing so well and then um the other one that i'll just i'll mention just because again like i was paying close attention to them um wisconsin i think they they just had a really 
unfortunate first round draw against guess who UCLA. Um, and that uh, really just set them back a little bit. But the rest of the weekend, they really took care of business, ended up working back up to a positive overall record of six and a half wins. Um, their last round you know, had a loss by one. Um, their third round, they had a loss by, it was a kind of interesting, they, it was a minus 11, plus 18, plus 10 uh, against BU, which I just, you know, I always think when every single ballot is in double digits, but it's a split, kind of always interesting to see what was going on there. But um, definitely a good showing out of Wisconsin. Um, really excited for them. Just what a wonderful program. And I, I, I mentioned before how excited I was for them and, and that I thought really highly of them. And I think the fact that they ended up with a winning record is, is definitely good and impressive out of them. But I don't want to dwell too long on one division when we've got another one to talk about, Ben. So I will, I'll toss it back to you for some final thoughts before we go to our other division. Yeah, just a couple other things. First of all, I, I phrased something a little bit poorly earlier, so I want to clarify. Um, you know, I, I had mentioned Harvard's only loss, and, and I was talking about in that round, Harvard did have a loss earlier in the tournament to Michigan. Michigan was the other team that managed to get a ballot off of uh, Harvard, which is why Harvard went 10 and two. They, they took two out of three from UCLA as well as Michigan, who finished second and third. So certainly no one could suggest that Harvard had an easy path through the field, considering that their CS, if you look here, is several points higher. Um, UCLA's is one behind them, but after the two of them, there's a point and a half separating them and Brown. So top two teams, high CS's, you know, sort of the, the way that it should be. Um, I think Drew, that you highlighted some really good points. Uh, I want to mention a couple of folks sort of uh, near the, the end of the placement list, but, but still worth mentioning. Uh, and that's UT Austin, who I think is a really, really strong program. Good on them to, to place as well as Boston University, who I think uh, is a very, very strong program, but is sometimes overshadowed a little bit by some of their Northeast counterparts. And so good on them to get their way into the top 10. So an impressive showing from them. Um, I'm just kind of glancing back through here because I thought I had one more thought, but it has sort of escaped me. So I think, Drew, you've pretty much covered everything. I think the last thought that I'll offer on this is you just Harvard, UCLA, Michigan is an example of like as as those top four. And you could even include Irvine and Yale in there, like just how tough it is to break into the top, right? That if you think about the legacy of three elite programs, two programs in Harvard and UCLA with national, you know, multiple national championships going into the final, and then Michigan, one of our strongest teams every single year, uh, just an incredible pedigree of teams rising to the top in this division, which I think speaks to the caliber of those three programs and just what they do year after year after year. Uh, but I think that is pretty much it. Um, if I remember my one other thought, I'll, I'll toss <laughs> it back in later. And I think you can go ahead and take us to the Pullman division. All right. So in the Pullman division, we had, you guessed it, 24 teams and 10 of them got their placements. And we're going to go in order our eventual national champions with a ridiculous 11 wins. We had UCLA a, they also had a CS of 26, uh, followed by Hillsdale College, a who had nine wins in a 31 CS, then Georgetown with nine wins in a 23 CS, then UVA with nine wins in a 22 and a half CS, then U Chicago A with eight wins in a 30 and a half CS, then Tufts B with eight wins in a 29 and a half CS, 
then NYUA with seven and a half wins and a 23 and a half CS. And then we have Indiana with six and a half wins and a 24 and a half CS. Then Notre Dame, Henry Lehman's team, of course, with six wins and a 28 and a half CS. Then Northwestern A, six wins and a 26 CS. Then we get to our honorable mentions, starting with Ohio State A, six wins and a 22 and a half CS. Emory A with six wins and a 22 CS. Florida A, six wins and a 20 CS. Patrick Henry B, six wins and an 18 and a half CS. And finally, UC Santa Barbara, six wins and a 15 and a half CS. Um, obviously, UCLA A won the national championship round afterwards, a close 5-4 split in their favor. Um, 11 wins is just stupidly impressive. I don't... I. We've discussed how difficult it is to do well, but uh, to go eleven and one is pretty insane. I will I will say that their first loss, their only loss, I apologize, um, in in the you know first four rounds was actually in round one, and it was against Hillsdale. And knowing how well Hillsdale ended up doing, um, it, it should show you why that was such an intense first round, um, and such a close one too uh, at that, um. Other than that, though, UCLA just absolutely took care of business. They had to face U Chicago, um, who I think would have probably been most other people's team that they were expecting out. Obviously, um, the national runners up last year in round three, and UCLA managed to sweep that round. Um, ridiculously impressive. I mean, Chicago literally lost one ballot otherwise the rest of the weekend. Um, so, just goes to show you how good that UCLA team was. Um, but I mean, I mentioned them as the one team that took a ballot off of them. Hillsdale coming in at nine and three, our second team um, in this division, I think is really impressive. I mean, a really, really strong showing out of them. Um, definitely did not have an easy weekend at all to have to draw UCLA in the very first round. Um, but they just really took care of business outside of that round. I, I really think that Hillsdale has proven to be a really top quality program. I think everyone was talking about them a lot this year, but they proved that all those people knew what they were talking about. Hillsdale is going to be a team um, that definitely is to be feared um, for the next coming years. I mean, going nine and three at Nats is, is always really impressive, but definitely a very, very strong program. Um, I'll also say that Georgetown... I I think they're a pretty big surprise to have gotten nine wins. Um, I think that everyone thinks of Georgetown as being a very solid team, but I think that to me, Georgetown and like BU kind of occupy a very similar space in my head where there are other teams in the general vicinity of them, like you kind of both said, Ben, that are, are kind of more noteworthy usually and are, are usually... Uh, tend to place a little bit higher than them. I feel like they're very consistent at getting to nationals, but kind of very consistent to be in the honorable mention or, or lower placing type category. Um, and to get third here is definitely a, a vast improvement for them. And, and to get nine wins is very, very impressive. Um, just in general, I'll say that it was interesting to me just how many teams there were at nine wins. You know, we also had UVA right there at nine wins in this division. Um, I feel like that was a lot. Um, you know, compare it to the fact that there were no teams with nine wins in the other division. And, you know, you had two with 10 at Harvard and UCLA B in the other division, but then we jump all the way down to eight and a half. So I feel like a, a much more top heavy end result um, in the Pullman division than we saw in the uh, 
BPJ uh, division, as we're going to call it. Um, one other thing that I'll just mention uh, before I toss it to you, Ben, is Tufts B um, kind of outperforming their A team. I think that that's always worth noting. Um, definitely really impressive out of them to get eight wins, especially as a B team. But I um, just wanted to note that. I mean, again, I, I mentioned how tough the Tufts schedule was in the last division, but um, definitely think that their B team having such a strong performance bodes very, very well for that program and its future. And if there were any doubts that uh, they had graduated too much talent and they weren't going to be able to keep it together, uh, I think that that has been very, very confidently assuaged and they look as scary as ever. Um, But Ben, uh, there are definitely a lot of other teams to talk about. I'll, I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, you definitely hit the big ones. Um, Just a couple of things to note here. I'll I'll return to UCLA in a moment. Your flagging of Hillsdale and Georgetown, I think both very, very important points. I'm looking here. um, There's a a poster on impeachments uh, with the screen name Dubes. I didn't choose that, just just quoting our source here, who does an unofficial TPR. And so I'm glancing at that. And at least as of now, and, and again, I'm not endorsing this. This is someone else's work, but this shows Georgetown ranked ninth next year, Hillsdale ranked 10th next year. So a huge jump, more for Hillsdale than for Georgetown, but a huge jump for both of them. And I did go back and glance at last year's results because Georgetown, they got two teams to nationals last year. I remember they were the first two bids out of Cincinnati. We played them at Orcs and nationals last year. You know, they're, they're a very, very good team, very strong program. Um, and so I think like what you, when you say a surprise for them to jump into the top five, it's not suggesting that, you know, anyone, you know, that they're undeserving or anything like that, but I think it represents growth for their program to show that they, uh, you know, took such a huge step forward last year. They had two teams at nationals, but neither one placed. Um, and for them to have a team at nationals again this year and for that team to do so well is a big step forward for their program. Uh, I think you highlighted, you know, Virginia, just such a good, deep program. I think this year they're a little younger than maybe they have been in some past years. I have to imagine they will be a force to be reckoned with in in future years. Um, Good points about Tufts. Totally agree with that. And obviously Chicago defending national runner up. Uh, And then you have this list, you know, had this log jam at six. uh, And in addition to NYU at seven and a half and Indiana at six and a half. And you've just, just got so many of these programs that are perennially good and just kind of jockey for positions a lot right so like you had northwestern a at six wins emory a at six wins florida a at six wins ohio state a at six wins indiana at six and a half wins and i think it just shows how damn hard it was to get more than six wins in the pullman division that what only six teams seven teams pulled it only seven teams if if you go to six and a half only seven teams managed to get above six and a half wins in the Pullman division. And that just really shows you how brutal this division was and how hard it was to even get above a 500 record with the quality of the teams that you saw here. Uh, I'm glad that you highlighted Hillsdale's path and specifically UCLA's path. Um, Obviously, you know, not a shot at Hillsdale, but I don't think when those cards were drawn for round one that anyone thought UCLA A versus Hillsdale A was going to end up being the 1v2 matchup. But it is a very good thing that in both sides, right, both divisions, you got a 1v2 matchup. Because that's the thing for me. Whenever you see Nationals results and you see a team like UCLA had a 26 CS, Hillsdale had a 31 CS. So like, you know, UCLA on paper, right, had a more difficult, had an easier path than Hillsdale. But Hillsdale got their shot. 
right? If Hillsdale had taken two out of two of those ballots or had swept UCLA, then Hillsdale would have had a chance to to jump UCLA. So I think it's always worth noting in a situation like that that yes, UCLA had a lower CS, but like Hillsdale got their shot and did well, but wasn't able to get the ballots they needed in order to sort of claw ahead of UCLA. Also, let's just let's just be clear about why UCLA didn't have a higher CS. It's because all the teams they faced got swept by them, pretty much. So, like, yes, it's harder to get as many wins when you're beating everybody. Yes, no, that's one hundred percent true, right? Like, it, you know, I think when you contrast it, <laughs> I want to be careful here because I'm really not trying to suggest that UCLA, our national champion, the best program <laughs> in the country, like, like had any easy path whatsoever when you look at the teams they played they played a very very challenging schedule i think the reason i highlight it is to say hillsdale had a brutal path and for them to fight through the teams that they had to play and still manage to get nine wins suggest especially since they had a b team in the other division that they are going to be a force to be reckoned with in the future uh i think that is most of what we have covered um, I briefly mentioned NYU. They had two teams at nationals. You know, one is an earned bid, the other one. I mean, they're both earned bids, but the other one coming as a result of the sanction we discussed in the last episode. So very impressive showing from them. Um, and this is their a, yeah, their A team. So to see them back in the top 10, uh, having another impressive showing from such a historically great team uh, is something worth noting if you look towards the future. Uh, and then you, you see a couple of B teams sprinkled in here. Patrick Henry B suggesting unsurprisingly, right, that Patrick Henry is going to continue to be very good. I think we had discussed at different points, Indiana um, having a strong season. So for them to be in the top 10, uh, very impressive showing from them as well. So I think my takeaway from the Pullman division is, look, anyone who watched the national final round, I think could easily conclude correctly that UCLA, like this was just their year. Right. Given that they came like two mm-hmm. points away from having a UCLA v UCLA final round, which I know we've already mentioned, but would just be insane. Right. Like this is not a shot at our good friends at Maryland, but when they did it, however many years ago, Amto looked nothing like what Amto looks like now. And then I knew it was impossible for several years because of you know what is known as the Maryland rule um, or in my program, what we call the college park rule. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, like in today's AMTA in 2023 to come this close to getting two teams in the national final round, I think you could argue is the most impressive program performance at nationals Mm -hmm. in the history of the American mock trial association. And I, I, it's not a slight, you know, at Maryland who, who played themselves in the final, but like, you know, many, many years ago, but like, to do that in 2023 with the caliber of teams that both UCLA A and UCLA B had to face is just wild. And I sort of want to end my analysis of the Pullman division on that point. I'm sure I hope we get a chance to talk to UCLA and we can reflect on that point, but just unbelievable. And I'm glad you drew it a connection to their law school team because clearly UCLA is on top of the mock trial world right now. And you you have to imagine at both the law school level and the college level that that is not changing anytime soon. Yeah, there's something in the water out there. I don't know what it is, but it makes people really, really, really good at this activity, I got to say. Um, I, I think that you're right, Ben. Um, I, I would consider this to be the most impressive program performance that we've ever seen. Um, you're right to point out that there's just there's a difference in the caliber and the quality and what this pro, the, what this activity looks like now. And really, I think of it as in the kind of post-Nationals case era. Um, yeah. 
I just never would have thought it imaginable that one program could be that dominant um, at, at, at nationals. It's, it really is just kind of insane. Um, one final, final couple of points that I want to make. Um, Northwestern, uh, I think, had a kind of really unfortunate final round pairing where uh, just because of a lot of impermissibles, although they were at six and three, um, and probably should have been in around with another one of those many six and three teams. They had to face uh, UCLA A, um, and that's just kind of unfortunate for them. But it was a really, really close round, a minus one, minus two, minus five. And I just wanted to note that, you know, kind of just how close those things were and, and you know, get a few of those ones and twos flipped the other way. And maybe we've got, you know, a Hillsdale or, or someone else in that final run. It would have taken a lot to be clear, but, um, and, and again, like UCLA clearly was on top of their game, but just wanted to note how close that final round was. And, and my hat is off to Northwestern. I think that while they are along with that other big cluster of six and six teams, I think that, um, it, it maybe doesn't reflect just how good that Northwestern team was. And then the other thing I wanted to quickly mention, because I've talked about them so many times, I just want to shout out my Arkansas squad that I've been, <laughs> you know, really rooting for. Um, I think that their first round, they had Patrick Henry B and they went plus six, minus one, plus 11. And I was like, okay, Arkansas, let's go. And then guess who they get in round two? UCLA. UCLA. <laughs> uh, yeah, not not the round two pairing that anyone wanted to see um, that was rooting for Arkansas. But um, I just wanted to mention it because I've talked about them a lot this year. But, uh, you know, good job, guys. Really tough CS for a, for a 3 and 9 team to have a 29 CS just feels feels pretty tough. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll toss it back to you, Ben, if you got anything else. I, <laughs> I think that's a that's a good point to mention. And, and I totally agree with you. The only other thing I will say as we sort of move towards the conclusion is just a note about AMTA history, um, which is with UCLA's national championship victory. Uh, we do now have a tie for the most championships in the history of the American mock trial association. This is UCLA's fifth title, uh, which ties them now with the university of Maryland college park. The one difference between the two, of course, Maryland has appeared in seven final rounds. They've won five. They've lost two. Uh, UCLA has now appeared in five final rounds. They've won all five. So, that is just incredible. Obviously, to be a five-time national champion uh, is an unbelievable thing. Uh, to just never lose a final round, right? To just go five for five in final rounds. When you think about the sort of the Yale dynasty and however many years, right? That like even if you include the the sanctions year, right? That like they they won it twice, right? And it's like they were in that final round so many times. Um, or you think like, even a program like Harvard, right? Harvard you know, won the national final round last year and I believe has lost it for, yeah, they've won it twice and they've lost it four times. So, so has Yale. So going back several years has Bellarmine. Um, and so for, and Rhodes has been, has been in it nine times, has won it four and lost it five. So to go for five, five for five in national final rounds, just kind of wanted to reflect on that for a moment. It's pretty incredible. No, that's an amazing stat. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned it. Well, in the interest of, of wrapping up this episode and not dwelling too long, um, this has been a amazing year of mock trial um, and, and a lot of fun. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention is kind of a, a plug. So as many listeners may remember, um, I was trying to get started a undergraduate tournament that was going to be hosted by Tulane um, Law School um, this last January, and it didn't end up happening. We had a lot of people drop out. But um, 
to the shock of many, I ran um, uh, uncontested for the role of uh, running that tournament this year. Um, <laughs> and so we are going to be hosting it again, and I will be running it myself this time. Um, and and my plan is to host it at a similar time. I'm still going to be reaching out to a few of the other programs in the area that host um, tournaments. Then I think that we didn't realize, but like Texas A&M was the same weekend and Florida was the same weekend. And it was, I think U Classic was that weekend too. And I just want to kind of make sure that it, it makes sense at the right time. But I'm mentioning to all teams now, if you really want to come shoot me a message, uh, you know, if you're in our discord, that's an easy way. If not, you can shoot me an email. Um, uh, am I going to give out my personal email on this? I guess, you know, what? send it to my Tulane email, aevans18 at tulane.edu. Um, go ahead and, and message me if you, you really want to come. Um, I'd be happy to probably get your program a, a, an invite. Um, but just wanted to mention to people that I am planning on hosting it. And I will tell you all that now that I've been to a few law school tournaments, my plan is to try to bring the law school style of tournament where they have a whole banquet and lots of food and like other like swag and stuff like that will be given out. Um, but it'll be obviously an AMTA tournament in terms of the AMTA case and all the rest of that stuff. So hoping to kind of bridge the best of both worlds now that I've experienced both of them. So that's my little plug. Um, hoping to see lots of friendly faces at that tournament once it happens. Well, just bear with me one second here. Cause I'm just taking a moment to sign your Tulane email up for cat facts. Oh, um, good. and Thank then you. <laughs> God, that's a reference to a meme that most of our listeners probably will not get. Um, but that's very exciting, Drew. <laughs> um, I hope that that tournament goes extremely well. I'm sure that it will. Uh, and that's just really, really cool that you're planning to, you know, to hopefully get that off the ground this coming year. Uh, so to kind of wrap us up here, uh, I did just want to acknowledge our mock review gold patrons. We've had a lot of really great discussion in our Patreon uh, or in our discord, you know, with our Patreon over the last couple of days and weeks, especially as nationals was upcoming. And I'm sure we'll have more in the weeks to come. So huge thank you to Mike Romano, the family, the family of all American Daniel Sosa and Darius Baruch. Uh, I'm sure a very happy alum, Ian Lampert, Andrew Hinckley, Kate Hainer Slattery, Henry Lehman, Felix Bhattacharya, Ben Rathsom, and Don Martin, amongst others. We're very grateful to each of you for your support uh, of the podcast. So we appreciate everyone listening. We've got some exciting episodes coming up. Obviously, we're getting ready to go towards summer. So we're, we've got Trial by Combat coming up. I've heard rumbles that maybe Rookie Rumble is going to be a thing again. Can't confirm that, but it, but it's a possibility is what I've heard. So maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. And before we know it, we're going to be doing our case release episode. It's going to be August and it's going to be time to do this all over again. Congratulations to UCLA on becoming our 38th national champion. And until we are in your feed again, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Drew.